Thank you, Nathan. Awesome to be reminded there about the refining fire that we'll all face. God will burn off the dross, that which, which, which wasn't important. And we'll look back wondering uh, where our time went. And Timothy would have to face that, like all of us, about the refining fire. How was our time spent? Would we embrace the ministry that God gave us? And that's where we are today. Looking again at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Since we'll only be covering one verse today, why don't I begin by reading that? 1 Timothy chapter 1, it will be verse 18. It says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. This is the third time now in in one chapter that Paul has been telling Timothy, using military terminology, fight the fight. It's a command. Back in verses 3 and 5, the NASB translates these words, instruct and instruction. The King James says, charge. Paul tells Timothy, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct or charge certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In verse 5, the end goal of our command or instruction is love. We're reminded that, that love is a consequence of accurate instruction, doctrinal understanding. It's not a result of emotion. But when addressing Timothy here in verse 18, Paul uses the noun form of this Greek term, parangelia. And as I shared a few weeks ago, this is a common military term of that day, meaning to announce or to command, even with intimidation. This is one indication we have that that Timothy may have had a timid personality. In the, opening of chapter, uh, in the opening chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul also reminds Timothy in the same way. He says, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. So in verse 18, Paul tells Timothy, This command I give to you, fight the good fight. And again in 2 Timothy 2.3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And in a final exhortation of his last letter to Timothy, Paul said this, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And he reminds Timothy, I have fought the good fight, says Paul. I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. For often, too often, we forget that Christians are called to battle. We sip our tea, we dream of luxurious early retirements. We sit back, stroll through the daisies, if you like. Sit in the recliner, watch some Wheel of Fortune. See if Vanna looks any different today when that close-up comes than she looked yesterday. She never changes. Everything's the same as it's been the last 32 years. We imagine ourselves about how nice it would be to win one of those trips to Jamaica, right? Watching the Wheel of Fortune is fine, but we're just being entertained to death in America. Rather than devoting ourselves to Christ, it's much easier just to sit in the recliner there, isn't it? Just surrender the flesh, have a good time, relax. 
But from time to time we need to reminded, be reminded that when it appears that we're doing nothing, we actually are doing nothing. In reality, this passive disposition that we take, in that we're losing. We're losing time, we're losing opportunities, we're permitting ourselves, we're permitting our world, our, our sphere of influence to be overcome by evil. There's no, there's no stalemate in battle. You either you fight on forward or you're yielding ground, you're losing time. You know, it, it is just a lot easier to just acquiesce to the enemy, isn't it? Just kind of give in. Paul knows that. And sometimes we forget that Timothy, he's not a whole lot different than we, we are. He, he's a normal human being. He has that human desire of wanting to be accepted. Shares that desire of preferring to be passive. And Timothy shares uh, this sinful nature we have to just concede to evil the world around us. Just give in. And our spiritual pacifism is destroying our country. It's destroying our churches. It was destroying Ephesus. And Paul commands Timothy here, stand up and fight the fight. Because evil had surrounded the church in Ephesus, and as an overseer, as should all Christians, Timothy wasn't just supposed to point out all the evil things going around and just acknowledge them, complain about it on Facebook. No, Timothy was supposed to engage the enemy in battle. And supposedly, you know, the enemy in Timothy's day was a whole lot different than the enemies today. Very far removed from us. Timothy was facing such things as apathy towards evangelism. We'll see that in the first part of chapter 2. And he lived in a time where there was beginning to, to fade the distinction roles between men and women. That role of, of God's design being different for a man and a woman, that was beginning to evaporate in his time. He was living at a day where, where men with no moral or spiritual credentials or qualifications or character were leading the church. There were men who turned religion into legalistic righteousness. Others resisted the call to any godly discipline at all. They said, we don't want that. We'll see in chapter 4, some refused to even care for their own family members. Others viewed the church as a mechanism to care for them. Ephesus, there are Christians playing favorites towards the rich. There are those pastors who saw the ministry in the church as a means of getting rich. Aren't you glad we don't have to deal with any of this today? Probably don't even have to go through the rest of the book, right? Then poor Timothy, he was the one charged or tasked to confront all these problems. Timothy, handle it. And at the close of this letter, Paul laments to Timothy. Here we have a young shepherd. He's charged with guarding this defenseless flock against all of the wolves around him. And Paul calls out to Timothy in this way. Oh, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Of course, from this first chapter, we already learned that the greatest challenge facing Timothy was false teachers. When Paul charges Timothy to fight that good fight in verse 18, he quickly provides an illustration of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, so Paul was forced then to remove them from the church. About this we're going to talk more next week. 
But here, as Paul has already resumed his travel, he's gone on to Macedonia and beyond, young Timothy's charged with remaining on to fight. And though Hymenaeus and Alexander were removed from the presence of the assembly, we can probably figure that they weren't removed from the influence of the assembly. In fact, we learn later on uh, in, a, in the second letter to Timothy that Hymenaeus continued to harass Ephesus. Just because a person or a group leaves doesn't mean that they go very far. When the wolves are driven away, very often they'll linger in the dark shadows to see if they can pick off any sheep that are wandering too far from the flock or from the shepherd. This is why Paul commanded us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, concerning those who were removed from the church due to discipline problems, due to unrepentance, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So once a a so-called Christian like Hymenaeus and Alexander has been removed due to unrepentance or sin, Scripture says you don't keep tabs by email. You don't meet for coffee. You don't private uh, Facebook message. Jesus gave instructions concerning this in Matthew 18. He said these people become stumbling blocks. Jesus says if they remain unrepentant, our responsibility as pastors, as church, put them out. Even ignore them in the same way that you would a tax collector. Harsh, isn't it? Harsh. But but just as a primer for next week, because that's where we're going to be, there are always people who will instead disobey that order. It's either because they don't believe God's Word, perhaps they haven't been correctly instructed in God's Word, haven't seen those verses. You know, they'll adopt their own private little ministry that they're going to do on the side, that they're going to restore this person all on their own. They'll use the excuse sometimes, you know, they're more compassionate, more understanding of the situation than the pastors. They feel bad for that divisive, immoral stumbling block. It just left. And they say to themselves, you know, if I just had some time with this rascal, I think that we could restore this situation. Give him just one more chance. I think they'd begin to see things our way. That's not right. That's an excuse. It's a disguise. And, and what they actually want to hear is the criticism and the gossip that that person has to offer. And, and of course, Hymenaeus, uh, these types, will gladly, they'll gladly grab an ear, stretch the facts, use it as an opportunity to talk about the congregation, talk about the pastors, talk about the leadership, if they're given a friendly ear. So those pieces of gossip, whatever you want to call them, they'll creep their way back into the congregation in Ephesus. They'll stir up discontent. This is how it was with Timothy. The guiding scriptural principle is, and again, we'll consider this next week because we're getting ahead of ourselves, but if someone is asked to leave the church due to discipline, or if they depart a church in an angry huff, because they didn't get their way, whichever way they leave, they leave. Then you leave them alone. This allows the Holy Spirit a season to work in that person's heart. It can convict them and give them that season to say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should be back in that church again. 
Maybe the problem is me. If you're coddling them in their disobedience and their rebellion against the church, how then do they start to feel bad about themselves and what they've done? So we give the Holy Spirit a season to work in a person's heart. God says, Jesus says in Matthew 18, leave them alone. Leave them alone. They don't have a shoulder to cry on. They'll be forced to self-examine. Either they'll return. They'll be convicted by their sin and they'll return. Or they went out of us because they were not of us, as we learn in 1 John. That doesn't mean you can't say hello in passing at Wendy's. That doesn't mean people who've left pleasantly for another reason. This is for people who've been disciplined. And it's not our ministry to short-circuit what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life in restoration. Besides, if they are a wolf, you might stand a chance of getting picked off. I think I could just copy and paste this for next week. I kind of like to just say it again, same stuff next week for Hymenaeus and Alexander. We'll hit this again. But in Ephesus, the wolves kept tearing at the flock. They didn't go away. Paul was forced to intervene. Now he calls for Timothy to stand up, fight the good fight in Ephesus, fight against the false teachers, battle against the false accusations, fight against the greediness that existed, deal with all that internal strife that's going on, Timothy. And you'd have to ask yourself, why would any young promising pastor stick around and deal with this? The answer is many won't. Many won't. Paul had left a team of elders in Ephesus earlier in Acts 20. Where are they now? Why didn't they deal with Hymenaeus and Alexander? Why did Paul now have to step in and place Timothy in charge over a church that should have already been shepherded? Why is Paul in this letter forced to provide detailed prerequisites for for the role of elder and deacon in chapter 3 that we'll discuss in coming weeks? Why are the elders who are supposed to be in Ephesus not even acknowledged in this letter? It's my belief that they washed out. They washed out. Remember in Acts 20 when, when Paul said that after my departure I know that savage wolves will come in among you. Dispersing the flock. The men were in tears. Paul was leaving and they broke out in tears. It was a bad situation in Ephesus. Pressure just got too great. Let's face it. Most of the men that would meet the, the criteria of being an elder in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you know, they could do other things. They could get a good job elsewhere. There's, there's promising opportunities, less headaches, fewer insults possibly, These guys either quit, they gave up, we don't know. At the pastor's conference up in Jacksonville last week, uh, Pastor Weiler and I went to, they said, we couldn't believe this. The current statistic for pastors who enter the pastorate, only 10% make it to the end. Either they wash out, they quit early, walk away early, Leave the pastorate. Hmm. They hang up the spurs. That's just amazing. You know, everybody who heard that, it's just shocking. The whole room full of pastors, you just heard a big wind let out. So as, as, as a pastor, 
You have to be absolutely assured of your calling, especially if you're doing it occupationally, because your family relies on it. You have to be assured of it. You must be convinced that God is calling you to shepherd, because you're constantly going to face challenges. You're either going to be challenged or you'll face challenge. And the first principle of any man aspiring to that office of elder, paid or unpaid, is you're going to have to realize you're going to face challenge. Situations are going to arise. That'll cause a pastor, especially a very young, promising pastor, to look back at the crossroads of life. Say, you know what? I wonder if I should have gone the other direction. I wonder if there's still time to go back to that crossroads, that previous career, where I was before, and pick up where I left off. You look back, you have to know and trust that you were called by God. This is how Paul reinforces Timothy right here. Look again at verse 18. It says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Timothy is to fight the good fight according to the previous prophecies made concerning him. There were prophecies Actually, a string of prophecies, hence the plural, prophecies, that were made by God concerning Timothy. Paul says, look back at what God told you. So, a biblical and accurate understanding of the term prophecy is definitely in order here. You know, there's just so much misunderstanding about the word prophecy, and about the term to prophesy, the phrase to prophesy. And the term prophecy, actually it's Greek, prophetes. It means simply to speak forth or declare God's message. To speak forth God's message. Quite literally means to speak for God or to speak God's word. This is what the Old Testament prophets did. They spoke on behalf of God before the Bible was completed. They spoke for God. The prophet's words were God's words. Isaiah's words were God speaking to Israel. Jonah's words were God speaking to Nineveh. A prophet spoke on behalf of God. A true prophet, who was speaking accurate prophecies, would be verified by what? They'd be verified by predicting accurately a future event. That would be contained in the prophecy. wasn't the prophecy itself. They would be able to accurately foretell exactly what mile marker your car is going to blow a tire out on tomorrow. They would know exact things. They weren't vague prophecies like you get on that call-in line telling you that you're going to be you know, very rich tomorrow or a week from now. Oh, we think you're going to be a really important person, very vague prophecies. No, a prophet had specific prophecies that could be verified, not vague generalities. Please listen listen closely. The phrase to prophesy in itself doesn't carry any connotation scripturally into foretelling a future event. To prophesy means only to speak on behalf of God. Moses prophesied or declares God's word as he wrote the Pentateuch. Uh, Solomon prophesied or spoke God's message in Proverbs concerning the things that are timeless. 
wisdom literature was just as valid then as it was in the future. Isaiah, as a prophet, spoke, to, spoke for God for immediate prophecies that would happen in the time of King Hezekiah. And Isaiah also, as a prophet verified by God, spoke of prophecies, spoke God's word concerning what the Messiah would encounter, how he would be punished. We have distant future uh, predictions concerning the crucifixion of Christ. And these are all prophecy. They're God's word. Prophesying means simply to declare God's word. The term possesses no essential element of foreknowledge or prediction. The idea of a, of a person prophesying a future event, what's going to happen tomorrow, without itself being part of God's word, just the, just the event itself being a prophecy, that was unheard of in Christianity until the Middle Ages. The word was never taken to mean that. Prophesying only means to speak for God. The predictions themselves are not prophecy. Today now, God has spoken fully through His Word. Right? In the last book of this Bible here, Revelation, the last one written by the last living Apostle John, in the last chapter of this book, essentially in the last paragraph of Revelation, says what? You shall not take away nor add to the prophecies of this book. No more speaking for God. It's right here. You've got what you need. Jude said, it's a faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. It's a once for all done deal. We don't have new prophecies, people speaking for God now as they did back then. You can't add to this book. Thank you very much, Joseph Smith. Well, that wasn't true in Timothy's day. Young Timothy lived in a different era. The men of the apostolic era had not yet completed writing this book. The canon was still open. And in fact, the earliest churches like Corinth, they only had a very small portion written of the New Testament. Only a little bit of scripture to govern themselves with. For that reason, God was still communicating to them through what was known as prophetic utterances. Prophetic utterances. James was the earliest book written. Probably about A.D. 49, possibly a little sooner. Paul and Timothy arrived in Corinth in Acts 18, right about A.D. 50. A.D. 51. The New Testament was very, very thin at that time. At most, Corinth had two of the four Gospels. They didn't have Acts. It was still being written. They didn't have the apostolic letters, nor these pastoral epistles that we're learning about right now, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, they didn't have those to govern the faith and practice of their church. They couldn't go to the Word like we're going to today to govern the church. They didn't have the book of Revelation written. That wasn't going to be written for a good 30, 35 years yet. What Corinth did have were prophetic utterances through the conduit of miraculously spoken languages, known as tongues. They were real languages. And I I like to describe uh, these tongues as short sound bites of God's revelation, short short messages from God, 
God the Holy Spirit miraculously speaking to the church. Miraculously directing the church. Tongues were prophecy. It was God speaking. They're speaking audibly to the church. This is how tongues worked in Acts chapter 2 during the day of Pentecost. We see a multicultural church come together and and an unlearned man would miraculously speak in a human language language, a tongue that he'd never learned or studied. And and then then you'd have another person who actually knew that same language who, who was from their background and they would interpret the message for everyone else to hear. Now, for example, if Gerald was prompted with a message from God, he would signal. And he'd speak out in, let's say, fluent Portuguese, a message from God. Fluent Portuguese. And a person then who knew perfectly fluent Portuguese, let's say my wife Rita, who grew up in Brazil, speaks perfectly fluent Portuguese. She then would interpret the message spoken by Gerald in perfectly fluent Portuguese, and then the church would know exactly what was told. That is a miracle. Gerald, have you ever studied Portuguese? No. No comprende, he says. That's Spanish. (laughs) That is how tongues worked. A person unlearned in a language would speak in that language, and someone else who knew the language would deliver the message to the church. That would be a bona fide miracle. Would you all agree? Now, if Gerald were to speak, stand up here now and come up and just start babbling, would that be miraculous? No. No miracle there. And, and, and these sound bites, these short messages, would help the early church to learn about God and His desire for them before the full canon of Scripture was completed. We have no idea how long these sound bites were, whether they were three sentences, or a minute, or a minute and a half. None were recorded. None were written down. None were preserved. The church simply would obey what they were told through that prophetic utterance because they knew it was from God. It was miraculous. There's no other way it could have come. And and they made sense. They conformed to the rest of Scripture, which is always important. Everything that they would have learned would have conformed to the Old Testament. We see this with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. While in Antioch, verse 2 says this of Acts 13, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's what the Spirit said. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, this means the church and the elders had laid the hands on them, then they sent Paul and Barnabas away on a mission. So being sent out by whom? The Holy Spirit, Scripture says. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed on to Cyprus. So the Holy Spirit provided this specific instruction through an interpretation, a prophetic utterance, such as a miraculously spoken language, a tongue. And it was equal to God himself speaking when this happened, because it was the Holy Spirit speaking through that. It was God's word to the early church. It wasn't just an audible voice from heaven in those situations. When when God spoke audibly from heaven, such as at Christ's baptism, Scripture records it. It was an audible voice from heaven. That's where it came from. Not these. 
the Holy Spirit also gave a series of prophecies concerning, concerning Timothy. The Holy Spirit had called Timothy into ministry. We don't have the specific recording of what the words were, but we are told about it. And, and the Holy Spirit uh, gave him Timothy's spiritual gifts. They were authenticated through these prophetic utterances. And, and these utterances were heard and witnessed by the church and by the Apostle Paul. They heard them concerning Timothy. And, and some of Timothy's spiritual gifts were, were this. They were public speaking, exhortation, teaching. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll see this in three more chapters, it says, Paul writes to him, Until I come, Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying of, on of hands of the presbytery. So the prophetic utterance was affirmed by the laying on of hands. It wasn't wasn't miraculously given mystically through the laying on of hands. The presbytery or the elders heard it, knew it was God, and then they laid their hands on Timothy or Paul and Barnabas, affirming what they had heard from God. No special power going through the hands. They affirmed what God had said. And, and, and Timothy had had these, these prophecies concerning him, and just as leaders in Antioch affirmed what the Holy Spirit had revealed concerning Paul and Timothy, um, Paul and Barnabas, they did so with Timothy. They, con they confirmed the Holy Spirit's declaration by the immediate laying on of hands. That was an ordination. That's an ordination. What Paul is doing when he commands Timothy to fight the good fight is telling Timothy... Remember your ordination. Remember what God spoke. Remember what I saw, Paul says. Remember what was testified to the church in what you were going to be used for. Remember what God has spoken to you, Timothy. How he has gifted you. How he affirmed that you were going to be in this situation, Timothy. You can trust God. He knows where you are. He knows what situation you're in. It was affirmed by the entire church. Now the difference with ordination today, it's with the completion of declared prophecy, the Bible again, completed, that the Holy Spirit's giftedness has to be assessed or discerned of people over a period of time. A man's character must be observed over time. Church leadership must affirm God's calling to a ministry over years. Things now changed. Paul will tell us when we study chapter 3 in this same book, leaders must be tested. And then warns not to lay hands on too quickly. And thereby share in responsibility for their sins, right? There's a delay now. That's in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5. So Paul no longer says, well, just wait for a prophetic utterance so you'll know what to do before ordaining someone. This is, this is one of the ways that we know that, that by this time, 1 Timothy, written in about 64 A.D., um, these miraculous tongues, prophetic utterances, were greatly diminished, starting to fade, or possibly just gone out altogether in that short a time. And, and we know that Paul predicted this would happen in the book of 1 Corinthians. As Paul declared, 2 Corinthians, uh, this was more than a decade earlier Paul had said this, Paul said, love never fails. 
But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, that means knowledge that is transmitted through utterances, it will be done away with. doesn't mean knowledge altogether will. If there's knowledge that's received through these spiritual gifts, it will be done away with. And then he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, which means he only had partial knowledge of God's word. The prophecy was only in part. It was only a section of the Bible. So he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. But Paul Paul continues, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. What would be the perfect that comes? What is the partial that would be done away with? Utterances. They were partial revelation. They were sound bites. They were part of God's word. Now we have the fullness of God's word. People like to say that when the perfect comes... You know, that, that means Christ's return. No, I, I don't think that can be done because we're not doing p- away with the partial of Christ. I don't know how that fits in this whatsoever, 1 Corinthians 13.8, if you want to look at it yourself later. The perfection that came was a completed canon of Scripture received before the close of the apostolic age. Again, Revelation was the last book written by John. Once that closed, the Bible closed, prophecy closed. Now you do not add to it, nor take away from God's prophetic message. Paul reminded Timothy, you know you've been called according to God's purpose. You heard God speak with your own ears. So did I. Now fulfill your ministry. Fight the fight. When the chips are down, you don't really know why you're still doing what you're doing. You're getting frustrated. Look back to see what God has done in the past to reaffirm what He's going to use you to do in the future. He's not saying to Timothy, live in the past. That would be futile. But it was given to give strength and endurance for the future. Allowed Timothy to recalibrate. So what has God called you to do personally? What ministry have you set aside while chasing the wind. When you sit at home, lie down, watch Wheel of Fortune, can you say you have embraced your calling? Have you done that? Do you still not know what God is doing with you? If so, why not? Do you know why I think that most Christians, honestly, don't fulfill the ministry that God has placed before them. This is just being honest. It's my opinion. I think in America, it is because most Christians have embraced way too strong of a sense of autonomy. I don't need anybody. I can do this on my own. That doesn't work when you read First John or the other books of the Bible, by the way. We have this sense of autonomy and we say to ourselves that we don't, we don't need anybody. We don't need those church relationships. We don't need the church at all. I'll just open my Bible at Starbucks. How often have you heard that? And, and if there's something I don't like, if there's decorations I don't like or colors I don't like or music I don't like or instruments I don't like or people I don't like, I can just go out on my own. I'll just disappear. I'll stay home. I'll protest. And people don't stick it out with their church today. They don't do it. 
A few want to serve. Everybody wants to lead. But most never stay in one location long enough in order to be found competent to lead anything. They don't stick it out where they can be observed, where their giftedness can be discerned by others around them. If you want to lead just until the Mr. Hymenaeus types show up, then they're out of there. Well, I suggest to look back at the prophecies concerning you, prophecies concerning me, God's word concerning you, God's word spoken about you. And that, that means you can look at the prophecies concerning you as what God has said concerning all Christians. Is God's word still faithful? It's just as faithful as it was for Timothy. It's still faithful today, yes. And God has declared, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. That is a prophecy concerning you. That is God's word concerning you. So are you listening, Timothy? Paul says. Are you listening, Port St. Lucie Bible Church? What God has spoken, He will do. But even Timothy who heard God speak audibly through these prophetic utterances, even he needed to be reminded. And he witnessed something supernatural. He needed to be told to fight the good fight. So once you're a Christian, you need to be reminded over and over. Here's a couple prophecies. Be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bear fruit. Increase in the knowledge of God. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. These are prophecies concerning you. Here's another. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. There's prophecies all over Scripture concerning you. You need to embrace them. What is God willing to do with you if you allow Him? I'm going to ask the men to come forward. We're going to celebrate communion, distribute communion, the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate what we have together in common. Common faith, a common confession, a common Lord. And being an active part of a local church, as we've discovered and studied in previous books, it's essential. It's where Christians are observed by one another, served by one another. It is where giftedness is discovered. As you're serving and others observe you, as leadership sees how you're talented, where you're skilled, where you're not skilled, Your giftedness is discovered in community. It's not coming through a prophetic utterance anymore. It's through the body of Christ where you learn where you're supposed to serve. And and today, leadership still lays on hands, still does ordination. Some view ordination as merely an exam about facts. A lot of people can can learn facts about the Bible. A lot of people can pass a test. That's not so much what ordination is. What the ordination is, is a formal acknowledgement of what the church has discovered over time concerning God's working in your life, calling in your life, especially in regards to pastors and deacons of the church. So you have a group of leaders who, who by laying on of hands, acknowledge what God has revealed about a person, 
through the church. And what the church in general has come to see over time, what everybody's witnessed. That's why when you, when you put up people for, for ordination or for office, you announce them beforehand. The whole church has seen how they've been serving. The whole church knows what their giftedness is. I could tell a dozen of you right now what your giftedness is. You can observe it over time. Where's Blake? His giftedness is evangelism, at least one of them. No doubt about it. Gerald, teaching, no doubt about it, one of them. But we don't require you to be observed over a long period of time or publicly ordained in order to break bread with us. If you're visiting PSLBC today, uh, you acknowledge yourself as a sinner separated from God in need of a Savior. Now you believe Christ, through Him you've been forgiven, that you've been reconciled through His shed blood. If you accept Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead, we invite you to join us in the bread and in the cup. Nathan, would you pray before distributing the bread? As the bread is being passed, would you sing with me two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory
In the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul also wrote to the church in Philippi, as we read earlier. And he said, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare as Timothy. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. Timothy was a man proven to serve. Let us do likewise. Earl, would you pray before distributing the cup? As the cup is passed, you'll see one verse on the screen of Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.